Hi, I'm Sam Kent, a Transplant Nephrology Fellow at Johns Hopkins and host of the NKF Life of Nephrologist podcast. We have a good few special guests today. I'm here with Dr. Carrie Willis, Chief Scientific Officer of the NKF, Dr. Andy Levy, Professor of Medicine at Tufts Medical Center, Dr. Joe Koresh, Professor of Epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, and Dr. Mike Rocco, Chair of the Kedoki and Professor of Medicine at Wake Forest Medical Center. This podcast will celebrate the 20th anniversary of the very first clinical practice guideline for chronic kidney disease, which included recommendations for its classification and staging. The original work group of the CKD guideline published in 2002 in the AGKD was chaired by Dr. Levy and Dr. Koresh for the adult section of the guideline and Dr. Rob Portman for the pediatric portion. This guideline has had a profound impact on clinical care of both adults and children with kidney disease and is also a major catalyst for CKD research. Uh, the published guideline was cited by more than 12,000 journal articles and now has over 20 accompanying editorials. In 2012, the guideline was updated by the KDGO to stage CKD by cause, glomerular filtration rate, and urine albumin categories. In this podcast, uh, we want to talk about how the CKD staging system has been now adopted globally, influenced clinical care, research, and policy. So let's start with Dr. Willis. When the NKF decided to release a guideline which included the CKD stages, did you realize at the time the impact the guideline would have on clinical care? Um, you know, I think that when we first released the guideline, we committed to making it have an impact on clinical care. We had a big task, right? That, you know, we had uncovered this public health problem that affected 20 million Americans, at which virtually none of them were aware that they had this condition. We ramped up both our efforts on the policy front, on professional education, and um, really working with clinical laboratories. So I think that we are still waiting for you know, the ultimate result, which is that kidney disease is diagnosed as a routine part of clinical care. And, you know, as, as, as you were formatting the guideline, there must have been a particular goal that the NKF had about the CKD classification per se. Do you have anything to say about that? It may seem counterintuitive, but Essentially, the impact for the, the sort of impulse to develop these guidelines came from the dialysis guidelines that we had developed a few years prior. So in the United States, it had been observed that uh, dialysis patients had much higher mortality um, than dialysis patients in other countries. And so we set about really trying to examine the evidence for what were the best practices in dialysis to try to bring dialysis patients' survival in our country closer to where they were in, in Europe and in Japan. In looking at that evidence, uh, we realized that, you know, we did publish guidelines on the technical aspects of dialysis. So, uh, you know, targets for adequacy of dialysis and vascular access and so on. But what really was impacting mortality was um, this very high frequency of um, cardiovascular events. And so in order to change that, uh, we realized that you really had to find kidney disease 
you know, and, and, and treat it much earlier so that um, you would be able to sort of blunt its impact on the cardiovascular system. And let, let me jump to Dr. Levy. Um, I've heard him talk so many times at this point um, that I might be even repeating my questions to him since I was a fellow. How has the guideline really impacted the care of adults with kidney disease, you know, as you see, as you go about in your daily practice? And how did you see your own clinical practice change after the release of the guideline? Sam, we need to take ourselves back to that time before 2002 and go back when the concept of having a guideline for earlier stages of kidney disease came up. We didn't have a name for earlier stages of kidney disease. We didn't have a definition. We didn't have a conceptual model. And we didn't have criteria for how to make the diagnosis uh, irrespective of determining the cause of kidney disease. And in fact, we found that patients would go to a kidney doctor and the kidney doctor would tell them that they had a decreased kidney function, but in fact, they should come back to see whether it got worse or not. So the guideline included a conceptual model. It included a definition, criteria to make the, to fulfill the definition, and the stages based on the GFR. This had an enormous effect on allowing epidemiologic studies to occur and encouraging early referral. So I think all of us saw our practice increase by patients with earlier stages of CKD arriving at our door. And, you know, since care uh, for patients is, is front and center, you know, when it comes to developing a guideline, did you see improvements in care as, as time uh, went on? And if there was any, was, there, was it gradual or did you see a fairly rapid change? We saw a huge range of questions which had never been asked before um, that we then were able to try and answer, which was, what should medical care be for people with earlier stages of kidney disease? We were quite interested in the idea of slowing progression, but we then began to be interested in reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease, which was specifically increased in people with earlier stages of kidney disease. And I think that was the biggest thing. But the questions led naturally into other complications of chronic kidney disease, such as harbingers of the uremic syndrome, metabolic and uh, hormonal abnormalities, malnutrition, um, and then other questions that are so common in the elderly, such as what can you do to uh, diagnose or treat cognitive impairment, which is more common in CKD infections, which are more common in CKD frailty, which is more common in CKD. We began to realize that based on epidemiologic study, these indeed were complications of chronic kidney disease, even if we hadn't figured out the causal mechanisms. The same way diabetes complications are regarded as complications of diabetes far before the glucose hypothesis was ever proved. And let me open up the question to the work group. I mean, did you have any concerns or hesitation uh, about the CKD stages? I know it's very topical um, these days as we've discussed that. Um, and was there any concern about the lack of age or sex-specific uh, GFR thresholds? I mean, the amazing thing is that we spent a lot of late nights worrying about a lot of things. And at one point or another, I think we mentioned lots of stuff, right? I think we were intentional about some of these things 
but it didn't mean they'd go away. So we decided to look to hypertension in particular for a non-age specific cutoff. And we realized that it would mean the prevalence, particularly of low GFR, would be very strongly age dependent. Uh, and then it meant that we had to understand consequences by age. But uh, we saw that coming. And I think the good thing is, in coming up with the cutoffs, we decided at the very beginning that whatever Andy and the group came up with, uh, I and others would work on looking at the population implications so that we would not be surprised in the short term. Dr. Levy, is there anything you'd like to add? You know, we didn't put out anything by mistake. Every, every aspect of the uh, definition and the classification uh, Joe had already done the analyses to see what the implications would be for the U.S. population. In doing so, Joe and his team actually figured out that we had to do things like standardize the creatinine across the country in order for the GFR estimates to have meaningful effect. He realized that we'd have to have clinical laboratories report the GFR in order for clinicians to take it up. When we ran the numbers, as I'll call it, we understood the large number of elderly people that would be affected. We had a hint that uh, GFR would be a risk factor even in the elderly, but it really depended upon uh, much larger studies to be able to show that as clearly as we've been able to see it. Although it remains a point of contention and a point of debate because people do their studies a little differently, I have faith in the numbers that uh, we've put out. We did think that it was not unreasonable that there would be a large number of people with chronic kidney disease. We didn't think it was unreasonable that most of them would die from cardiovascular diseases and other causes without reaching kidney failure. We also took the epidemiologic or, or the clinical model of diabetes that very few people with diabetes die from ketoacidosis or non-ketotic hyperosmolar coma, but most of them are affected by diabetic complications, which affects their survival and quality of life. So we didn't think it was a problem that kidney failure accounted for such a small proportion of the people who had kidney disease. In fact, any preventive strategy, obviously, if you go earlier in the disease to try and prevent it, you have to treat many more people than the number of people who ultimately have the bad outcome. We didn't think that early kidney disease would be the province of nephrologists only. We anticipated the coordination and care with general practitioners and primary care physicians, and that nephrologists would be treating the tip of the iceberg the same way endocrinologists treat only a small fraction of people with diabetes. And why do you think the adoption was so widespread? Well, I think that uh, Carrie's team did a wonderful job in terms of promoting the, uh, and disseminating the guideline and the necessary information to clinicians from all different uh, backgrounds, including dietitians and social workers and nurses and now physician assistants and non-nephrology clinicians. It was wonderful to work with NKF as a partner in their implementation. I think it resonated with people that they were missing patients when they were using the creatinine alone. And clinicians wanted to do better and laboratory specialists wanted to do better. So the laboratories came right on board to report the estimated GFR. So it 
stood in the face of every clinician that the GFR was lower than they had anticipated just based on the serum creatinine. And, you know, I think doctors wanted to do the right thing. Let me ask Dr. Willis, um, how has the 2002 guideline altered uh, public awareness of kidney disease? Um, And in many ways, did the guidelines redirect activities for the NKF? Well, I'm going to take the second part of that question first and say that that the guidelines, you know, really sort of heralded a paradigm shift uh, for our whole organization. So really before we published the chronic kidney disease guidelines, well, you know, NKF started as, you know, essentially a patient support group for uh, families who had children with nephrosis. And uh, so we very much were focused on, you know, support for people with very late stage disease. Um, So, you know, dialysis patients and, you know, sort of promoting access to transplants. And, you know, really, since we published the guideline, NKF has been slowly transforming into a public health organization. I mean, it really altered, you know, pretty much everything we do at the national level and in the local offices. So now we are partnering with, you know, federally qualified health centers um, to help their primary care physicians find and treat kidney disease. And we are, you know, partnering with the federal government. So uh, to answer the second part of your question, I would say that the guideline still hasn't altered public awareness enough. But we were extremely encouraged and gratified that in 2019, the federal government essentially announced an advancing American kidney health initiative. So for the first time, kidney disease, you know, is being given the plat- a platform that was given, you know, say 30 years ago to cardiovascular disease by the federal government. And, you know, we hope that we can build on those efforts. So basically they announced in 2019 that their goal was to reduce the number of Americans who develop end-stage renal disease by 25% by 2030 through improving efforts to prevent, detect, and slow the progression of kidney disease. So, you know, we are working, well, our, our Washington office is working every day to sort of hold them to that promise. And one thing that happened as a result was that in 2020, uh, we actually launched the very first national public awareness campaign for kidney disease. It was the RU the 33% campaign. So which, you know, highlighted that people with diabetes and hypertension and people of color were at higher risk and uh, directed them to a quiz on our website that basically helped estimate their risk and encourage them to see their physician to be tested. So we have a ways to go, but public awareness, you know, it is absolutely growing. You know, we are increasingly getting, you know, our hotline, which is, you know, 1-800-NKF-CARES and our website is, you know, that we're now getting a million page views a month. We are getting there, but there is more work to be done. I mean, we're starting to realize that you know, CKD is a pretty big um, public health concern. But let me ask Dr. Levy, I know you've written a lot of articles about CKD, highlighting how big a public health concern it is. And how did the CKD guideline impact in making sure that it's highlighted as such a big problem? 
the epidemiologic studies helped. Of central importance also was the fact that the National Kidney Foundation helped to change the ICD-9 codes for kidney disease. So practicing clinicians were able to use the same uh, words, chronic kidney disease, and the same GFR stages in their coding and billing. This helped in terms of reimbursement for care. This helped in terms of people doing uh, population studies based on clinical practice rather than prospective epidemiologic studies. There were efforts that were carried out then by, for example, dietitians and nutritionists to argue for medical nutrition therapy, which became uh, an entitlement for people with earlier stages of chronic kidney disease, defined uh, the, the way the guidelines define them. There were curricula that were developed in all the other fields of medicine in addition to uh, clinical medicine that we practice. And then there, of course, there were international efforts. And these were really paralleled the efforts that had gone on in the United States. The, the KDOKI guidelines were adopted by the International Guideline Writing Group, uh, KDGO, in about, I think, 2005. So I think that there was really a coordinated effort among people writing and implementing guidelines in the U.S. and around the world to harmonize the terms that we use, to harmonize the GFR estimates that we use, to harmonize the uh, clinical interventions that were recommended. And I do think nephrology is far ahead of the curve in terms of those international harmonization efforts than most specialties. It really speaks to a dedicated group of people and a desire to improve the outcomes for patients with kidney disease. Um, you know, and every every time a guideline is released, I think there's always um, certain parts of it that are not as well understood, or you know, an interpretation of that is not conveyed properly. Do you think that there was any downside to the guideline? You know, there's a famous scene in The Wire where um, where one of the cops says to the guy who's just testified in court whether he testified falsely. And Omar turns to McNulty and he says, are you asking me that question? Um, no, I don't actually think there's been any downside to the guidelines. I think all the controversy about the specific definitions and about how to implement them and about what kind of care is a level one evidence versus level two evidence has actually been good for the discussion. And it's been good for nephrologists in learning to base their recommendations on evidence rather than opinion, and good to get the evidence out in well-done epidemiologic studies and clinical trials. And I think we've seen some wonderful advances in therapeutics for chronic kidney disease in the past few years. We waited a long time since uh, renin-angiotensin and uh, RAS blockers were used in diabetic and non-diabetic kidney disease. And now we have a panoply of medications that are useful in those patients that have specifically used the guideline definitions for entry criteria. Uh, they've used the recommended GFR and urine ACR uh, measurements and terminology for their endpoints. And I think that everything has actually been good, including uh, the vigorous debate about the applicability of the GFR methods or the uh, age criteria. So I'm glad you asked the question. Well, thank you. Let me turn to Dr. Rocco. Um, 
being the chair of the Kedoki, how do you think that the CKD guidelines change the direction of the Kedoki itself? So Sam, I think in many ways, the change in the direction with Kedoki has been similar to the change that has been seen for the National Kidney Foundation, as Dr. Willis had mentioned earlier. The original Kedoki guidelines prior to 2002 focused solely on end-stage kidney disease. What's interesting is that the original CKD guideline from 2002 had chapters on the association of GFR with hypertension and anemia and nutritional status and bone disease. Uh, and subsequently, uh, these were all developed into separate KDOKI guidelines. So clearly, there was a, a large expansion in terms of the purview for KDOKI. Today, all of the guidelines for KDOKI refer to stages of CKD in the guideline statements. All of the other guideline organizations, KDGO, regional guidelines, national guidelines, are using the same classification system. We also have to remember that uh, in terms of the pediatric nephrology community, the original guideline had information that stated that uh, the EGFR in children reached the mean level of adults by age two. So not only were you influencing care for adults, you're influencing care for the pediatric population. So the KDOKI guidelines have again used information not only in the, in the adult population, but also in the pediatric population. And finally, in the original guideline from 2002, there was a discussion not only about GFR, but also about proteinuria and the risk of progression, both by GFR and albuminuria. And that has since been refined further with the CKD heat maps where we look at risk of progression of chronic kidney disease, both in terms of EGFR and in terms of the degree of albuminuria. Yeah, I'd really like to pivot towards research and ask Dr. Koresh, how did the CKD guideline impact research um, for kidney disease? Well, it's, uh, it's fascinating, right? So I, I think, you know, as um, Carrie and Andy described, there was this huge emphasis on dialysis and appropriately so. Andy and I met on CHOICE, a study for healthy outcomes and caring for ESRD, and then six years later, teamed up again for the guidelines. Uh, I just looked up the term CKD as an abbreviation. And, uh, you know, I like numbers, so who knows? It's only a part of the picture. But in 2001, there were 18 articles in PubMed search that I found that had CKD in the title or abstract. By 2002, it was 90. Now it's over 4,000 a year. Now, of course, that's only the term, but I think we've really seen, right, a whole amount of research on epidemiology and outcomes research that's expanded by orders of magnitude. I think we've seen a common language that's really helpful so that we're talking about the same things. And I think the level of evidence is just so much better. And the generations of researchers that have come around with sophisticated tools are just uh, wonderful. And we can talk about it more. And, you know, I mean, I think it's important to even discuss the impact that the, you know, guideline had on kidney disease policy. Um, I'll, I'll loop in Dr. Rocco and Dr. Willis to answer this. I mean, there's no other chronic disease that holds a tighter link with health policy, both at the state and federal level than kidney disease. Um, I'd love your thoughts on how the guideline influenced health policy. Well, I think in terms of policy, we've seen a number of different initiatives 
that have come about. Uh, Dr. Willis before had uh, referenced the Advancing American Kidney Health Initiative that was signed in 2019. You know, if you look at the details of that model, there are payment models to encourage home dialysis, to encourage kidney transplantation, to encourage better care of patients who have stage four, stage five uh, CKD through a capitated payment model. And, you know, we had to learn these new abbreviations. The government's always good at coming up with these alphabet soups of abbreviations. So we have a kidney care first model. You know, we have a, a comprehensive kidney care contracting model. So from a CMS side, we had certainly quite a bit in terms of initiatives, but it goes beyond that because there are many other areas uh, where it has affected policy. One can look at the CDC surveillance system. One of the disadvantages we have uh, compared to other national governments is we don't have a national database for healthcare. Uh, we have it for Medicare, but we don't have it outside of Medicare. So the CDC surveillance system is a wonderful resource. It provides a searchable database of CKD data in terms of prevalence and incidence, awareness of disease, burden of risk. So these are very important avenues that will help us in terms of identifying how we can help improve the care of patients who have chronic kidney disease. Uh, Dr. Willis alluded earlier to the Joint Public Awareness Initiative, uh, the RU in the 33%. And then and another way that it has affected policy is with the USRDS. Uh, back when the guideline first came out, USRDS would send out this large book once a year with the data for end-stage renal disease. Uh, and then in 2006, they decided to uh, include information on CKD. And they actually had to go to a two-volume report because there was so much information uh, that they had to include in this expanded report. Uh, so clearly the guideline has, has influenced health policy in a number of different ways, and I suspect it will continue to do so in the future. Dr. Willis? It's pretty amazing. I mean, the, all of the ramifications of the guidelines I think are still unfolding. I mean, I would just add about the payment models that Dr. Rocco was describing that um, I thought one of the most striking things about the kidney care choices models, which are, you know, the voluntary payment models, if you look at the overall impact, what they're basically doing is trying to shift the Medicare spend from ESRD to CKD, just really, you know, across the board. And they also, um, under the kidney care choices models, that they enhance the kidney disease education benefit. Um, so that essentially any qualified clinician can provide kidney disease education. What I see in the current iteration of the health policy in CKD is that, you know, 20 years on, we've learned what doesn't work, right? That all of the early policy changes that seemed like it's a good idea, but didn't really change practice. You know, so in other words, maybe it was a consciousness raising for clinicians phase we'd gone through, but now we have actual sort of boots on the ground. I mean, you know, that in the kidney care choices models, you know, you can have visits by telehealth. It's, uh, you know, we've started looking at what the real barriers are too, because I agree with what Dr. Levy said. I think that doctors want to do better, but the system is just not set up in a way to make that very easy. And I think we're made, that's another way we're making progress. 
you know, we're living in exciting times um, for a kidney disease. And you know, I think we've seen a massive spur in innovation, research, and clinical care. I am curious to, you know, hear your thoughts from each one of you about, you know, where do you see things headed and what are you excited about? Um, I'll start with Dr. Rocco. So I, I think in terms of the future, uh, what's exciting to me is some of the new treatments uh, that have been defined uh, by either EGFR or the uh, albuminuria. I mean, you look at the SGL2 inhibitors uh, that help prevent heart and kidney failure. You look at the, um, the primary outcome in terms of progression of kidney disease in terms of going on dialysis or, or having a marked drop in your EGFR. Uh, and these interventions had a hazard ratio of 0.6. When have we seen such an amazing effect on the progression of kidney disease in prior studies that have been done. And benefits not only for the kidney, but also for the heart. Uh, I mean, with the MRAs, we're seeing similar findings. They're not quite as dramatic, but still very impressive. And you have to ask the question, what happens if you combine the two of them together? Uh, and there are certainly, certainly some clinical trials that have started to look at this combination. So in terms of trying to slow the progression of kidney disease, this is an extraordinarily exciting time uh, in terms of uh, maintaining patients at their current level of kidney function and uh, decreasing the percentage of patients who either wind up on dialysis or have a significant cardiovascular event. Dr. Willis? You know, there are two things that um, when I look at the future that I'm really excited about. And one is that I think we've learned a lot that we're entering a phase where we will be able to use electronic health record systems to essentially just tell doctors what to do. You know, basically, I think we've made huge strides in getting, basically, if you're going to estimate risk, right, that you need a GFR and you need an ACR in the record. But once you have those things, you can just pinpoint for clinicians, okay, these are the patients that you need to pay attention to, and these are the things that you need to do. So I think that basically, I, I really think that we are going to see a huge decline in the rate of kidney failure in the United States, even within the next 10 years, because, you know, as Dr. Rocco said, there are these new treatments. And I think that we're learning how to overcome these barriers, right? To, because some of these things don't require a lot of thought, right? Like after you've done the test, some of the, the next steps are pretty obvious. And the other thing that I'm really excited about is that we've learned a lot about, so as I was saying earlier, why it is that uh, people of color are at higher risk for kidney disease and kidney failure. And, you know, a lot of that is because of social determinants of health. So as part, really, as our next phase of guideline implementation, NKF is able for the first time to get involved with organizations that, for example, like Feeding America, right, that address food insecurity. So we're actually talking to them about the possibility of could you get kidney-friendly foods into food banks? And, you know, so ultimately, you know, that we, we have painted this, you know, I think we've painted this very rich picture of where we can go. And I think that um, we're bringing a broader and broader coalition of stakeholders together to make this stuff happen. Dr. Koresh? Thank you. So I agree with uh, what Carrie and uh, Mike have said wholeheartedly. I mean, it's an exciting time in that we have better options than ever before. 
right? When we started this with Andy uh, and I was doing kidney disease epidemiology, some people said, why? You just treat the hypertension and diabetes. Is there anything additional? And clearly now there are treatments to the kidney that help both the kidney and the hypertension and the diabetes and the cardiovascular outcomes. So it's an exciting time. If I were to expand on one thing, I would actually return to what Carrie has said in a variation, which is I think using computers to help patients and physicians is powerful and transformative. And I think I like the analogy to using ways to help drive in the sense that we're not fully self-driving and I haven't surrendered the steering wheel yet. But now I turn on ways to give me advice almost all the time. And the advantage is it knows, even when I know the route, right? It used to be you take out a map to go where you didn't know how to go, right? And I think that's where some of the old algorithms are. Then the guidelines tell you how to go, but that's complicated. Now ways, it knows the route. It knows where you're going. It knows the traffic. It knows where the red light cameras are. And then you can decide how to do things better. And I think that's what we need. We need the computers to take care of the stuff that's hard for people to track, which is like doing the equation for estimated GFR. We had the lemon that Cockroft Golf people could remember in their head and do with a pencil. And this MDRD formula had lots of digits and logs. But I think we made just the right kind of lemonade by putting it in the computers, talking to lab systems, and making it automated. I think we need to make lemonade out of the complexity that we have to present information to physicians with recommended action plans that they can override, but most of the time will be correct, and then present patients with tools and educational materials and videos that would then extend the limited time physicians have, right? You're not going to replace the human need to motivate, but you can really enhance the education, the experience, and the ability to carry out. Dr. Levy? Well, you know, it's ironic that I'm going to talk about research and understanding, and Joe talked about clinical practice. (laughs) Please don't misunderstand. When I said I don't think there's anything bad that came of the guidelines, I don't mean that they were, that I thought they were right the first time. I think we've had lots of improvements in CKD classification. We've had lots of improvements with the guidelines. We just didn't know enough when we put out the 2002 guidelines. And when we updated them in 2012, we knew more. And so we made them better. Uh, They'll be updated again, right? That's the natural course of things. And we will learn more in the future. And I think that we should always ask why, right? Why are there so many people with decreased GFR and albuminuria? Why are kidney disease complications so common and so bad? Why do so many people get kidney failure? And we need to continue to ask those why questions that really are the underpinnings of why is it so frequent? That way we'll learn more about kidney disease I feel completely confident that the guideline terminology and the guideline classification will continue into the future, but we will hang on to each GFR category and each albuminuria category, other biomarkers that point to the fundamental pathophysiologic processes that have gone wrong, that identified treatment targets the same way the SGLT2 inhibitors were identified, and that we will 
continue to make progress by learning more. Now, learning more isn't enough. We have to act. We need good guidance to act. We need policies that reward good actions. But I think what we've done by developing objective criteria for how to assess the presence of kidney disease, the progression of kidney disease, and the outcomes of kidney disease, that we've set up a model where it's data that drives our uh, classifications, and it's data that drives our actions. And we should be excited that there are more people than ever who are interested in kidney disease research at the population level for kidney disease, and we'll have more data. And when we have more data, we'll understand things a little better and that will translate into better treatments and better outcomes for our patients. The KDOKI chair of the, well, at the time that Joe and I led this guideline work group was Gary Eknoyan and also Nathan Levine. And Gary always told us to keep the patient front and center of our efforts. Remember, this is all about the patient. It's not about nephrologists. It's not about the nephrology workforce. It's about patients with kidney disease. And I think if we keep that front and center in our minds, uh, we'll be able to apply the research that's sure to come in the future. I mean, just to expand, since Andy mentioned Gary's name, uh, I wanted to thank Gary as well. And in addition to saying the patient comes first, he reminded us of two other things. It was important to communicate clearly. So he wanted K for kidney, so people knew what you were talking about. And he wanted D for disease so that they would know they should do something about it. And I think in time, I've come to realize uh, he was right. Well, on that note, thank you. Um, Thank you, Dr. Willis, Dr. Koresh, Dr. Levy, and Dr. Rocco for taking the time to talk to us. And above all, for your pivotal uh, contributions to the realm of nephrology. Um, To the listeners, thank you for listening. And we hope you tune into our next podcast episode. Thank you. Thank you.